I'd like to tell you about an incident that happened a long time ago when I was in college. I was working during the summer after my freshman year. It was a hospital lab, and I was essentially an illegal, unlicensed lab technologist. I ran electrolytes, lipids, liver enzymes, that sort of thing. I was also the person who came in at midnight to do blood alcohols that were ordered by police after people were pulled over or got into wrecks. Since I didn't have a license, another technologist would come in at 7 a.m. and sign my alcohols. The hospital was near my college, Occidental. So I rented a room for the summer in a frat house. Aside from the place being infested with fleas, it wasn't too bad. One night I carefully crafted a homemade pizza by going to the grocery store and buying a frozen pizza. I very carefully read the instructions on the back of the box. I preheated the oven and then I tossed the pizza in. Now I have to tell you that nowhere on the box did it say to take the pizza out of the box before putting it in the oven. Clearly, I was not responsible for what happened. Let's look at Leviticus. It's the third of the five books of the Bible that have been traditionally attributed to Moses, although very few scholars think that Moses actually wrote them. The other four books are Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Christians call these books by the Greek term Pentateuch, which means five scrolls. They also form the Jewish Torah. The material in these five books was written over a period of many hundreds of years, and the Pentateuch was put into its final form probably between about 538 and 334 B.C. Leviticus is dedicated to helping the people of Israel be holy in their daily lives. It lays out extremely demanding goals that, if met, offer purity. Leviticus is set at the base of Mount Sinai. In Leviticus, God speaks to Moses from the tent where the tabernacle, which holds the Ten Commandments, were stored at the end of Exodus. In the book, we're told that various men are consecrated as holy priests. Laws of purification are detailed. They tell us how to keep animals clean and what women should do after childbirth. We're then told how to test for leprosy. After this, we're given the holiness code, which tells the average person how to live a pure life. Although the book seems like a massive compilation of ridiculously detailed and ritualized rules, it was written for an ancient people who needed a way to live holy lives. One of the things that people often note is that the book lays out detailed rules for offering sacrifices to God. They seem totally irrelevant to us today, but let's look at them. Here are the types of sacrifices and offerings detailed in Leviticus. One, burnt offerings were for atonement for sin. The whole animal was to be sacrificed on the altar. 
Two, grain offerings expressed a person's desire for God's blessing, as well as that person's dedication of their labor to God. Three, fellowship or peace offerings were often given alongside burnt offerings. A fellowship offering would end with a meal in which priests, the worshiper, and their family and friends ate together. Four, purification offerings were sometimes called sin offerings and were offered to compensate for unintentional sins and to obtain ceremonial cleanliness. Five, guilt or reparation offerings were offered as a way to look beyond sin and to focus on the long-term harm caused by sin. The person making the offering admits their guilt and pays restitution. There were other requirements beyond these ritualistic offerings. Israelites were required to tithe and to make donations during various holidays and for various ceremonies. What's interesting is that while the book of Leviticus gives us access to an incredible level of detail that we don't have from other neighboring peoples, offerings and sacrifices were common among Near Eastern cultures of this time. Texts from this period show us that people in Canaan, Phoenicia, Egypt, Moab, Syria, and Mesopotamia, and many other pagan nations and territories had similar practices. But while there are some significant similarities between the offerings and sacrifices of these peoples and those of the Israelites, there was a unique aspect to those of the Israelites. In pagan religions, these offerings and sacrifices were, in a sense, bribes to get the gods to do things for people. But the Israelite god was perfect and had no personal needs. It was impossible to bribe God. Pagan faith was also magical in nature, as if the gods could be forced to do things against their will if certain things were done. But the biggest difference is this. Over and over, the Old Testament makes it clear that none of these offerings, none of these sacrifices mean a thing if they're not accompanied by a true sense of repentance. The purposes of these rituals aren't to bribe or to trick God. They teach people that you must approach God on God's terms. You must listen to what God wants from you and do those things. Beyond that, you're free to express your love for God and your trust in God by making offerings and sacrifices. That's the real reason to read Leviticus, to learn how the Israelites used highly proscribed ceremonial practices to help them express their faith in God. They found a way to intertwine their faith with their daily, seasonal, and long-term life patterns. In many ways, we should be envious of them. Now, we do, of course, have holidays where we hold formal celebrations, but we only have a few, and they've been very highly commercialized and turned into secular holidays by our nation 
It's an almost desperate attempt to separate religion from the rest of our culture, and it's really very sad. So I do want to get back to that pizza. With a very inaccurate ancient oven belonging to the flea-infested frat house cranked up to the proper temperature, I very skillfully placed the pizza in its box on the top rack. I centered it perfectly. Then I sat down at the beat-up, rickety dining table and waited for the requisite number of minutes to pass. I also reacted immediately, with athletic skill, when black smoke began billowing out of the kitchen. There were no smoke alarms back then, but I dutifully notified the other occupants of the house by very clearly shouting, FIRE! I then ventured into the kitchen in a state of total bravery to see what I could do. I, of course, had no idea what could have gone wrong. In Christianity, we do, of course, have one major sacrifice, Jesus Christ, who offered himself up for execution. One thing we tend to not think about is that he knew very well what was going to happen to him. He may have died a young man, but all during his brief adult life, and perhaps during his childhood, he knew. Dying on a cross was gruesome. It was intended as a brutal, cruel form of execution so that people would become examples. The Roman Empire wanted people to know what would happen if you broke the law. People were hung on a cross with their knees bent at about 45 degrees. The only way to breathe was to use one's legs to lift oneself up. Death could be hurried by breaking the legs. Once the legs gave out on their own or were broken, the person would slowly suffocate. And while hanging on the cross and trying to use your legs to hold yourself up, your shoulders would quite likely separate. Often it would take days to die this way. Romans would sometimes crucify a group of people together along a roadway, perhaps, so that all could see them and could see them over and over until their decayed bodies were finally taken down. Jesus knew he would die this way. Theologically, we call Jesus' death, quote, substitutionary atonement. Jesus was our substitute. He offered himself to atone for what we would all one day do. Theologians say that at the moment that Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This was the moment when God accepted the death of Jesus as punishment for the sins of the faithful. It was, of course, symbolic. Jesus' death told us just how much God loves us and how much God wants us to live in joy and peace. We emulate the life of Jesus to make it clear to God and to ourselves that we appreciate such an empathetic creator. Back to the pizza. The people living in the frat house that summer were a mixture of frat members and other students like me who lived in dorms during the academic year. 
My yelling did indeed cause a number of people to come flooding down the stairs. Courageously, I was the first one to enter the kitchen. Clearly, for some inexplicable reason, the smoke was coming out of the very oven where I had placed the pizza. It was at that very moment that I realized the stupid mistake that the pizza manufacturers had made. Imagine not telling folks to take the pizza out of the box before putting it in the oven. I should have filed a lawsuit for emotional distress. I got the oven door open. Using a rag, I pulled the flaming pizza box out of the oven and tossed it on the linoleum floor, forever marking it as the site of a holy sacrifice. Other young people opened windows and doors. When the smoke dissipated, we all stood around Buzz's burnt offering, a blackened pizza box. There was some laughter. I was just going to toss the thing out and find something else to eat. But one guy opened the box. The pizza was in pretty good condition. I ended up putting it back in the oven, heating it up and eating it. We don't have much ritual in our lives. We do not make burnt offerings, but maybe we should. The Israelites were able to do things with their rituals. It rooted their faith, giving them constant, predictable markers that made it clear that God was with them. Rituals can reduce anxiety and increase confidence. They can help us sleep. A lot of athletes have little rituals that they go through before a performance or a competition. In the United States, we have a terrible balance between work and play. If we had some rituals... If we made burnt offerings, maybe we would be able to get away from work and away from other worries periodically and purify ourselves. We'd be able to wipe our minds clear and focus only on God.